You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 163 of the Make It British podcast. Well, so today's episode is not quite the one I intended to give you today because I did a fantastic interview with someone which I was planning to put out today. And unfortunately, we've had a disaster with the audio. It's become corrupted or something. So I didn't want you to miss an episode. I wanted to make sure that I got something out on the podcast today. So... I went back to our recordings of our Make It British Live virtual event, which we held in September 2020, because I remembered we had this amazing panel discussion all about how to use data and digital tools to transform your business. It was one of the most popular talks we had at our two-day virtual event. So I thought it was well worth a listen for those of you who were unable to attend. The panel discussion is moderated by Jodie Mutter-Hamilton, who is the founder of Black Neon Digital. She has worked across fashion, tech and communications for over 20 years, including having her own ethical brand. The panel features some amazing digital experts from within the fashion industry. And this is a really good conversation that is relevant to businesses, both large and small, because whether you like it or not, data and digital is drastically changing the way that we all shop and the way that products are made. So in this discussion, Josie and the panellists talk all about how data can help to inform much more personalised conversations with your customer and how it can help to make supply chains more sustainable and transparent. So the panellists are Cathy McCabe from Proximity Insight, who's worked with retailers and brands such as Burberry and Jaeger. Craig Crawford from Crawford IT, who has also worked with brands such as Burberry. Peter Needle from Segura, which helps brands and retailers to monitor and improve their global supply chains. And Chloe Watts from Chloe Digital, who provides digital strategy to influencers and content creators. They're going to talk about what data you should be looking at for your business, including when it comes to social media and content marketing, and how it can help you to make better decisions build community engagement and make our industry better. So over to Jody. I would now like to give a couple of minutes to each speaker just to introduce themselves. Um, can we start with you, Peter, and talk about, you know, your kind of very brief bio and kind of what Segura does as a platform? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm Peter Needle, the uh, CEO of Segura. Um, I started the business uh, about eight or nine years ago, um, having worked as a consultant in a packaging business that sold labels and tickets and things like that into big retailers. Um, and during my time there, I ended up having lots of conversations with um, some of the UK's largest retailers, which went along the lines of we order garments from garment manufacturers all over the world. and we, uh, for the most part, specify where those garment manufacturers should buy their components from. Um, and we do that because we want to ensure the quality and we want to make sure that the factories are, uh, are using high standards, et cetera. 
Um, but they would often say to me, we know nine times out of 10, the garment manufacturers ignore our wishes and go to their uh, cheaper alternatives down the road. Um, and that wasn't too much of a problem, apart from the fact occasionally they would end up with a situation with poor quality um, and other issues. But the, the worst thing happened during those early discussions, which was um, one of the early brands we were talking to ended up with the situation of a Daily Telegraph reporter turning up to their head office with a video of nine-year-olds making their care labels. And um, uh, that was just a, a, an awful situation for them. And that led to a number of conversations about how do we lock down our supply chain and stop manufacturers ordering from places we don't want them to. Um, and that essentially is where Segura was born. And um, over the next three and a half years, uh, myself and a, a team of great people, developers, put together a platform that now manages uh, that order processing part. And I think we may come on to that in a bit more detail later. Um, but it locks down the supply chain. It also brings huge efficiencies and savings to the supply chain and can help um, retailers and brands become more ethical and sustainable. Thank you, Peter. Um, Kathy, your turn. Go for it. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm Kathy. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Proximity Insight. Um, we are really very much grounded in data and customer centricity, and, and that's kind of where my background came from. Um, I started in retail many years ago um, on the shop floor and have then kind of halfway through my career fell into IT um, and then sort of like progressed from there really because it was you know my my fascination with IT at the time was really around how IT is very much an enabler to help brands right across the board um, improve their product services uh, their customer strategy etc and, and that's really where you know where my sort of passion with technology and retail really came from so um at Proximity Insight, we are all about helping brands to get closer to their customers. So it's really very much around focusing on a core of clienteling. So being able to outreach to customers directly through email, SMS, all the social platforms, and now through appointment booking, video chat, um, live chat, etc. Um, but apart from that, we touch every kind of um, part of the journey. So from capturing data to, you know, enhancing the customer profile all the way through to outreach, to recommending products, to um, finalizing the sale through payment links. So very much focused on customer um, and helping brands to improve engagement and reach. Thank you, Cathy. Craig? Would you like to go? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks for having me, and it's nice to meet all of you. Um, I started my career um, as a designer, so I'm a creative person in IT. Um, I was a textile designer for The Gap, one of six people to start Old Navy in the United States, um, started left design behind and started implementing technology used to design at a company American company called Liz Claiborne, and stayed there for a decade as we acquired a huge portfolio of brands. I started my own consultancy and landed Burberry as a client, and that's what brought me to this country. Um, did some work with Tory Burch before that, um, and then worked at Burberry to lead that digital transformation internally as a creative person within IT. 
Um, it's always fascinated me that fascinated me that IT looks at data, um, but only in the past decade or so has IT had to look at um, art as data and video as data, and so all sorts of different media that. I understood because that's the space that I came from um, and how we now translate that not only internally, but also direct to consumer um, using devices like, you know, the tools that both Peter and Kathy are all about. Um, so I'm very happy to be here. Um, I have my own consultancy now here in London. And for the past five, six years, I've been working with brands globally, helping them with their digital transformation. So how do they use tools to enable transparency to supply chain, to facilitate the supply chain, but also to engage with consumers and keep them um, loyal members of the brand, really? Thank you, Craig. Chloe, so your, um, your business is slightly different, but you've grown it from a really grounded um, tech background yourself as a coder and things. So, yeah, do you want to intro your business? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jodie. So my name's Chloe Watts, and I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Chloe Digital. Um, so as Jodie said, my background's in tech. So when I was a teenager, I very randomly taught myself how to code. Um, I'm a big geek. I might not look like it, but I'm a, a super geek. Um, and I taught myself how to code as a teenager. And I found it one of the most creative experiences, being able to write something and actually turn it and make it look beautiful. Um, so as I grew up, um, I kind of, in my early 20s was when the blogging industry started. Um, and at the time, I had a lot of friends who were getting into blogging. Just more so, just a side passion project. No one had any dreams of it turning into a business or an industry or anything like that. Um, but because they had blogs and they wanted it to look nice, and I knew how to code, they'd always tap me up to help them fix their websites. Um, and as time went on, I noticed a real gap as an industry started to form around these bloggers and money sites to be pumped in it from retailers and brands who were looking for brand partnerships with these bloggers. Um, so I identified a gap and created a business which would provide them with tech support and digital strategy to help grow um, their businesses. So the business has been running for six years now. Um, we look after over 300 now called influencers world, worldwide and we really help them with data at its corner. I guess I'll speak a bit more more about that in time, but we really help them understand their data and use it in order to grow their businesses. Thank you, Chloe. Um, first question that I want to ask to all of you is how do we know what is the right kind of data to be trying to find in the first place? So how do we identify it? How do we capture it and then also ensure that the people that we're taking the data from they are aware that this is happening and are okay with that, essentially. Um, Peter, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I mean, from our point of view, um, my business, as I explained at the beginning, works in the kind of deep, dark depths of the supply chain, um, going up the tiers um, for a retailer. Um, and effectively, most of that without a system like ours is managed um, in a fairly ad hoc basis in my experience. So the data can be held in Excel spreadsheets and intranet sites and you know the process of having to manage all of that internally is very labor intensive and the quality of the data is, is questionable at best. So what we find 
with um, a system like Segura because we're managing the order processing of all of those components in each and every garment. We can also do some interesting things with collection of data. So a few years ago, um, one of our clients, Ted Baker, came to us and, and said effectively, look, we need a way of collecting compliance data, and we'd love to do that through your platform. Can you make it happen? Um, and that then sort of pulls everything together in one place so that whilst you're processing orders through the supply chain, you can also ask those suppliers for information on you know, sustainability, like water use, electric use. You can also ask for compliance data, latest audits, all of those things. Um, of course, from a consent perspective in a system like ours, that's, um, that's captured while we're doing those processes. So it's very explicit consent uh, to capture that kind of data. But it's the order processing that gives a business like ours the leverage to get hold of the information that if you just ask for it voluntarily through another system, you don't tend to get the responses required. Um, How do you know what what your platform or the businesses are trying to find in the first place. So how do you come up with that they need to have water usage? Like, so, Yeah, so fundamentally from, from the point of view, it's what our clients are desiring um, from their suppliers. And usually that's driven by what their customers are, are demanding from them. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in a situation and um, uh, people like Fashion Revolution have got some great data on this about the... Um, the rise of the conscious consumer um, and for many years it was talked about now it's it's really happening mm. um, and i've noticed a sea change over the last 12 months so the demand to get into the supply chain and get hold of data to know exactly what suppliers are doing um, that they're not polluting waterways that they're using um, very sustainable methods in terms of creating their components and garments is what they're after and um, getting hold of that is really hard um, without a system like ours that's managing that order processing through the supply chain for them. We are still evolving on what data we can get, and we get lots of it, and we're overwhelmed by it. Um, and I do think that, you know, coming from design, and you, 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 there's certain things you need to get the business done, but we're realizing that's not enough. And to Peter's point, things in spreadsheets and business and email and things being done on phone and in notebooks aren't something we can extract and then share with the public. Or, as Peter pointed out, the need for his platform, if you don't, you don't even have visibility to it sometimes until it's brought to your attention in other ways. So I think we have to keep asking ourselves, not what data do we need, but what are we trying to transform our business to become? And then we go and find that data from all these other sources. Mm -hmm. And that's why platforms and data partnerships and data scientists are so important right now because they can help us see patterns in things that we may not even be noticing ourselves. Yeah, so basically think about what you're trying to achieve rather than what you're trying to find. Um, yeah, and I think that probably plays into what Proximity do, Proximity Insight do quite well, you know, in the sense that if they're trying to increase engagement levels, you know, that's the goal. And how do you do that? You use the platform and look at the data to identify your customer and, and nurture them. So, Kathy, do you want to kind of um, talk to how you know what's relevant and what isn't, I guess, then to achieve that goal? Yeah, I guess it's yeah, it's it's a tricky one, but it does you know coming back to Craig's point as well, it does actually come back to sort of trying to you know understand what it is that you're trying to do in the you know having really clear objectives mm -hmm. and goals, 
Um, and one one brand, we work with a huge amount of different brands, department stores, luxury brands, high street brands, you know, and everybody is quite different and they'll have a different sort of um, unique way of, of wanting what kind of uh, data to capture. And I think that's, that's, you know, a lot of people, if you start at the beginning, one, a lot of people don't capture data. You know, they still don't really capture data in a very meaningful way. Um, two, they, you know, one of the reasons for that is because they think it's really hard to capture data and to capture mm -hmm. it compliantly and to comply with various different data privacy regulations. But I think, and also the other thing is that people think that people actually don't necessarily want to share their data. And people don't want to share their data often because um, there's no value exchange. You know, I share my data, I get a load of, you know, emails in my inbox that are not mm -hmm. relevant to me. So again, it comes back to that point about understanding what is it that you want to do with that data and what are you going to do with that data that is there for a value exchange for the client. Capturing the data is not difficult. You, you know, there are a number of digital tools now. You know, it used to be capturing it with a card and filling it in and then trying to decipher a customer's, you know, own handwriting and then keeping it for seven years and sending it back to head office and a load, you know, it used to be. And then there are actually still brands that do that. Um, but actually, you can literally in a, you know, contactlessly pass over a form to a customer, get, you know, get them to opt in, you know, in the correct method, sign, do a, you know, a digital signature and all of that makes it super simple. So I think, you know, the, the, the hardest thing is to overcome the fact that actually capturing the data is the first thing that you should be doing and particularly, you know, sort of digital Digital capture is a lot easier and has been a lot more acceptable. And, you know, and, and there's tons and tons of digital breadcrumbs that you can pick up from, um, you know, from clicks that we all do, um, whether we like it or not, um, on a website and, and through browsing. And in a store, you know, and through, you know, freelance um, sales associates, et cetera, and D2C, you can, you know, there's definitely, you start in, you know, we always say, keep it simple. Start with a simple capture and then you can build from that or meant what you know about the customer. But being able to capture more about the customer allows you to personalize, allows you to make the messaging relevant. And then that is what builds the trust with the customer. And that's that's my uh, view very much on data. Um, so how do you. You know, we've talked a lot previously, Kathy and I, about personalization, and we know it's not just a name in an email. Um, what what is this? What is personalization? What goes beyond just knowing what you like and kind of offering new products based on that recommendation? Well, I guess again, it comes back to really simple outreach and messaging that's relevant. You know, very personalized. So being able to scale personalization uh, on a one to one basis. Um, but being able to reach out and say thank you or follow up with, you know, how was, you know, I hope you, I hope your dress was great. I hope the shoes were wonderful. You know, I hope that, you know, your, your graduation was, you know, in terms of whatever the occasion might be, it's not just saying, um, you know, happy birthday and here's 10% off it. Mm. That's not personalization, <laughs> you know, or here's an abandoned basket email and, and here, you know, that's not personalization. It is very much being relevant around knowing what the customer's preferences are, knowing what, he, and you build that up over time. It doesn't start in one pace. And I think that's where, you know, and now we can communicate 
communicate over so many different mediums in terms of, you know, SMS and WhatsApp and WeChat and, you know, video, which is hugely powerful and very immersive. Um, so I think that, you know, that's where we're getting into the human connection is absolutely, truly powerful. And we talk a lot about the power of thank you. And that's just a simple message, but it is not a welcome, you know, thank you very much, a, a, you know, a kind of curated template. It is much more a very personal message. And that's really what resonates with customers and particularly at the moment. So in terms of identifying, I mean, ultimately what we're talking about here is finding what's right for your customer, for your client, and ensuring that they've got a goal, a strategy, and the means to get there. So I know that now, particularly um, some of the inquiries that I've been having recently have been where brands and businesses are looking to almost remove the middleman, the wholesaler, the kind of intermediary and go direct to consumer. So how would you, um, for your businesses, help them to connect better with their end user, with their customer, whether they're looking, um, you know, to, to launch a new product or whatever it is? How do you use data and tools to find who you're talking to? So the question is, how do you use data tools to find uh, that your relevant audience when you're going to to new, going direct to consumer? Yeah, I think that I yeah. think we're just kind of in this mode at the minute where we're all looking at different things. So, like you know, um, I was speaking to someone the other day, and they have been a manufacturer for years and years. You know, yeah. whether it's, yeah. I mean, this particular person was in Bangladesh, but whether they're a British manufacturer, you know, make it. British show and they're now looking to not have shops, you know, to not wholesale and actually yeah. reach their customers. How can they look yeah. at what they've got already and use it to find those direct-to-consumer customers now? You know, it's a completely it, different way of working for them. Yeah, particularly brands that have been wholesale only because they don't have the uh, data. The, the wholesale mm. account has that data. Um, you know, just to rewind a little bit, historically, we in the fashion business do a spend analysis, right? We look at what sold last year, what was returned. You know, we look across all of our channels and we make some estimates. And then based on our instincts at market, we then start to create our assortments and our plans. And those um, th those methods don't serve us anymore. And, and sorry, but they don't because this year's a bust with COVID, right? How are we going to do a spend analysis to predict last year, next year? But what we can do is we can sort of comb and scrape and see what's happening in the digital space. Um, and that allows us to understand a lot about the consumer anonymously, but nevertheless, we understand a lot about what they're looking at, what they're engaged with. And we can see that not only across the brand that we work for, but we can look at competitors or we could look at complementary brands, but we can start to understand that, right? Um, and then we can start to predict what people will be interested in. If they're looking at pink and they're interested in pink and they're interested in denim and pink denim and short pink denim jackets, we can know that, right? Um, which makes it much easier then to start acquiring those customers. But the thing that's so different and this has happened so rapidly there's so many touch points now where consumers are influenced and are engaging with brands um, and it's gathering data from all those touch points to understand which ones are best for us and 
And then how do we engage on those platforms? And it doesn't mean one replaces the other. And so often, mm-hmm. and I think we all agree over the course of our careers, we always see when something new comes in, people say, oh, that, the Internet's here. We'll never have another printed book again, or we'll never have magazines again, or online's here. It's the death of brick and mortar. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's just one more source of data. It's one more level of engagement. And when we understand that television on demand is another level of engagement, when we understand that all these influencer sites, when we understand all the social media sites, um, but also even digital signage. I mean, let us not forget that, you know, here we are with our smartphones using our faces to, to, to get our money, to use our faces now to log into those phones. So that's visual data and visual data that's secure and accurate. And so as, as a result, we can even use things like digital signage to understand who's stepping at a bus stop to look at something or who's looking at something in a, in a, in a shop window. We can look at footfall patterns through, you know, amazing technology um, that that then gives us other ways to consider enticing those people and to reach out to those people quite anonymously. So the so the 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 way we we used to look at data, which is still new, which you know, demographic and click throughs and all of that, those things are important. But it's putting all of that together, and that's where this whole looking at a pattern looking at a pattern of data. I- to that point, you know, it's incredible how the influence industry has grown in such a short period of time. I mean, it's it's worth, I think it, by a few years' time, it's going to be worth $22 billion, billion. And, you know, there's still so many brands and retailers who haven't even tapped into the power of influencers and don't even understand, understand mm-hmm. it, um, mm-hmm. which to me is actually kind of a a cool thing because that means that there's so much opportunity out there as well. And from our angle, why we're, we're somebody that really believes in, you know, understanding the ROI for, for anything, right. Not just about brand awareness. We really care about how, how do this, how do the data actually um, translate the power of that influencer? Um, Because sometimes influencers get a bit of a bad rap when, you know, people are, um, faking their followers or their, their engagement on Instagram and things like that. But for us, we're not really too much connected to social media. We're more about their website and their website as a foundation of their business. So in terms of our analytics, we look mostly at their Google analytics and we really uh, dive deep into how their user engages with their content via what content they're reading, how long they're spending. And also we track um, every click that is made on their blog post. So we know what products that they're clicking on. Um, so we really track as much information as we can in order to give the influencer the best picture of their user so that they can go back to brands and say, you know, I know my um, my reader very, very well. Is this in line with your buyer persona? Yes, it is. So how can we work together? Because I have a special and unique connection with her or him um, and I'm able to to um, digest in an easier way your messaging so it doesn't often sometimes come across with a brand like it's, a, you know, it's a business, it's a brand. And they have that personal connection that brands, even though brands try a lot, it's very hard for them to do. Mm-hmm. I, think I don't know what the question was, but I feel like I answered something. You definitely did. <laughs> I, think, I think what's interesting is you've identified something that I feel um, – it's kind of a bit of an anomaly around like how many followers you have versus mm. engagement levels. So we talk about community and nurturing communities and kind of like the power of that. 
But if you've got 100 million followers, but no one's engaged, you don't know them, you don't have any clue of who they are, it's kind mm. of irrelevant. So, you know, you could have 200 followers, but actually, you know, every one of them personally, whether it's analytically or, you know, actually, literally personally, and that's way more powerful than something that, you know, that you're not engaged in. So how do you, Chloe, um, you've talked about the tools to do that, but how do you know where to find or navigate the difference between, um, I guess, fame and engagement? You know, what's, how do you advise your um, 300 plus members to, to make sure that they're looking at engagement over followers? I guess? Sure. So we have different uh, key performance indicators for that. And we're looking at conversions in different ways. So, for example, on their website, are people spending enough time? Now, when I say enough time, just because on one site, enough time might be three minutes and another site that might be five minutes. It really depends on the, the history of the site. It depends on the type of content that you're speaking about. For example, if the um, influencer is speaking about their personal journey um, to motherhood, for example, that type of blog post would maybe have five to seven minutes. If they're talking about their top 10 fashion finds, it might have 30 seconds because they've clicked on the affiliate links to go purchase the products. So we, we always think about, you know, what the what the goals are. Um, and then we use the data in order to ascertain if we're if we're hitting those goals if we're hitting those goals and we're me meeting those KPIs. Um, so we use the history of their own data. Yes, we have benchmarks on what works in different sectors. So whether they're a fashion blogger versus a beauty blogger, et cetera. But we really look at the history of their relationship with their reader. And we use that as a starting point to say, okay, well, how can we increase this engagement factor a, a bit more? Um, and when we are doing things like that, we understand that different different types of content bring different types of engagement. So, for example, when we're working on the editorial calendar, we might say, OK, if you're posting five blog posts this week, we want one to be an engagement type of post. So it's a personal piece. It reinforces your relationship with your reader. They spend time getting to know you. And that's the purpose of it. It isn't to sell anything to them. That is the, its sole purpose. And then you might have a brand partnership as another post, for example. We know this one will probably have less time spent, but you may be giving them some kind of discount or something and they're going off to another website to purchase. So the goal for that one was how many clicks could we get on that specific link? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, in terms of fame and engagement for us, Yes, some of our clients, I would say, are famous, um, but we don't really dabble too much in the in the fame space. You know, we really, really look deep into their understanding, their readers, their users, and how can we convert them in some way, whether it for the brand themselves, so we're converting them to help the brand, or if our client has their own products or service, how can we convert their readers into customers to purchase from them? What would you say to anyone starting out on their, you know, say, for example, the at Make It British, they're a startup brand, or perhaps they've got their own brand, and they're just about to launch, you know, a blog element to it, or a content element to it? What are the first things you would do on embarking on that journey? Sure. So that's a really important question because I think now when you're starting a brand, content is so important. You might have been able to start a brand in the past and just thought, oh, content is just something that is on the internet and I don't really need to care, care about. Um, but especially now in our new normal and everyone's on the internet, you know, for your brand to come alive, you need to be producing content. Um, and you need to be producing content that is relevant to your um, buyer persona, you know, your target customer. Um, and content that has that 
either authoritative or personal tone that they will want to gravitate to that content and eventually one day buy your brand. Um, But I think when starting out and producing content in association with a brand, you need to understand that just by producing a piece of content doesn't mean that person's going to convert and purchase from you. You have to really look at your content marketing funnel and see how you can funnel people down it to eventually get that purchase. But ultimately, you want to build a community around your brand. And that's something that we've seen um, really work these days, building a community around the brand so that they become brand ambassadors. And then as you bring out products, not only will they purchase from you, but they also help you decide what those products are to be. So we've we've noticed that a lot with um, very recent brands that have come out of the back of social media. You know, they they literally have the perfect um, scenario because they ask their audience, what is is that you want to see? And they just make that so they know the person will buy it. So I'd say when starting now, really think about how can you build a community around your product and how can your content kind of facilitate that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, yeah. what Chloe said is true for every brand. So mm-hmm. many brands fail to explain. First of all, they don't know who they are and who they represent, mm-hmm. right? I was at Burberry. We were born from a cloth. We came from, you know, the invention of wool gabardine, and we protected people from the elements. You know, we owned outerwear. That was that was the mantra, and we knew that. Um, and a lot of brands haven't done that analysis for themselves, let alone an influencer as a brand, right? So it's so important to know who you are and then who are who are members of your community and how do you engage with everyone. And that's that's where data really comes in to help you see who's engaged with you because sometimes your 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 community isn't who you thought, but you you wel- you're welcoming the, the, you know, to them anyway. Um, and therefore, how do you continue to engage? And that's where it's very different in terms of being agile around data, data sets, what we look at and how we move through this. Because historically, we made clothes, we put them out, people came, they saw them, they liked them, they didn't like them. We did that analysis and we revised and went on. But it's not like that now. America can shop what's being made in, you know, Italy this moment it's being done. You don't have to wait two years for it to trickle over anymore. So um, it's even in my my career, you know, looking at what's happening in Europe and changing it for America, it doesn't doesn't resonate anymore because we're all influencing one another because of technology. But because we're doing it on technology, we're creating data and therefore we can look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one thing that I'm kind of picking up through the conversation is basically we're looking at patterning and predicting. So it's like identifying patterns to predict what we're doing in the future. And um, I don't know whether it's still a feature of your platform, Peter, but um, I remember before you had kind of a geo mapping to look at, um, say, for example, where a button is. And then if there's a tsunami here, you could see how it's going to affect in the future the supplier. Does that do you still have that feature or how do you predict and sort of pattern out things for your clients? Well, I think there's m- massive opportunities with um those kind of systems to collect data and mine data from uh, the internet um, and patch that into your supply chain or what you're really interested in. So, yeah, the idea behind that is effectively we know the exact location of every factory f- that's on our platform. Um, and we do that by various methods, which um, which I won't bore you with on, on this talk. But uh, effectively, what you're then able to do is because they're all geolocated, if something comes up, 
um, on a new service or other service, then we can match that and alert our customers to the fact that they may have a, a supply chain issue coming up in that area and they can do a bit more investigation. So it's a kind of an early warning system. Mm. Um, and as, as we've talked before, uh, Jody, the, you know, the reality is because we've got that ordering platform, the supply chain map and all of those kind of services that we give to our clients is, is a kind of a byproduct. Um, I know there are some services out there that will, will look to map a supply chain. Um, we don't actually look to, to map the supply chain to start off with. We just look to process the orders, but the, the mapping, because we've got to know where everybody is in the world, comes out of that. And that is now displayed. Danny and the team have done a fantastic job on making that highly interactive for our customers. So they can click on a site and they can find out who's supplying who all across the world. Um, and knowing the journey of every component of every product um, can turn that into a very powerful message for consumers. And it also changes behavior. You know, we've noticed it's going back to an earlier point that was made. Because um, the retailers, the manufacturers, and the component suppliers now have access to data that they didn't have before, they just make better decisions, mm -hmm. um, better decisions in where they order from, the volumes they order from. And what we're looking to do um, as we develop the platform is things like add you know, carbon footprinting in there. You know, a lot of the carbon footprinting data that comes out these days is based on um, historic data that was um, done in some universities two decades mm -hmm. ago. Um, you know, and, and it's estimated. Uh, we're now in a unique position of saying, okay, you know, that every item of that garment, we know where in the world it was made, we know how it was transported, so therefore we can give a very accurate carbon picture um, that, that no other platform in the world can do. Um, yeah. And that can then enable buyers within the system to make better choices. If it's, mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. if it's a retailer's uh, objective to get that carbon usage down as much as possible, it might be that they have to pay a little bit extra to get something more locally. But in the overall objective, that still keeps them within the criteria. Yeah. That's the better choice to make. So having data at your fingertips, it really can transform mm -hmm. uh, what we do mm -hmm. as individuals. And, you know, turn that into a fabulous message for consumers and make it really compelling. Mm. So it's, it's really the informed decision making, isn't it, that it can predict and inform, um, which is back to Cathy, kind of what proximity does, you know, it can inform better decision making for, you know, say matches fashion, but also their end customer, you know, if they get recommended something that whether they are, you know, deciding whether it fits them or whatever it is, they can make a much better um, purchase decision and hopefully lessen returns and kind of lessen, you know, as you know, I'm like big about sustainability. So the less returns we can we can create, the better from my perspective. Um, so, yeah, do you want to just talk about informed decision making? Yeah, and, that, and you know, and it's a really it's it's an intrinsic part of what we do, pretty much, because you know, in terms of when you're taking all of that data and aggregating that data, when you look across, um, and it matches is an amazing example. You know, we've worked with them for over four years now, um, our first client ever, um, and that you know, and just across the board, we can actually see some, you know, not just at matches, but with with the other clients that we work with at John Lewis and Selfridges, Shiseido, etc., who are, are just about to go live. Um, we really have focused on what kind of behaviour um, works really well to drive um, increased engagement and obviously then increased value 
for the customer. But one of the things that's, you know, really heartwarming is to see things like an exact match on recommendations. And you will only get an exact match on recommendations in terms of purchase when, you know, you really know the customer and, and you know, whether it's the personal stylist or whether it's the sales associate or, you know, a DPC, a freelance, um, you know, associate can actually really sort of recommend something to a to a client and you know we we're seeing something like um 50 to 60 percent of recommendations then being purchased um and then you also get something like a 25 to 30 percent of alternative products that may have you know so I, I may not have an exact match because maybe the red shoes aren't in my size but I, I buy the black shoes or I buy the, the red handbag or you know along that way so I think you know, it, it's analyzing the data is really key because it lets you understand what journeys and every brand will have different journeys um, are working well, are, are really resonating with your client. And, you know, and one of the things that I think has been quite heartwarming is, um, you know, we're, we're getting sort of, you know, 60 to 70 percent open rates throughout the throughout pandemic. Um, which, you know, is a bit higher pre pre pandemic. We were probably at 30 percent um but it's kind of you know really grown great traction and the other area is is just on response rate so response rate was always lower but we've we, the, the response rate's been doubling tripling with personalized messaging and i think because now you've seen not just this rise of outreach outreach is just one way and whether that's coming um you know through social platforms through sms through email etc um, but also because you, if you're holding, if your appointment-based commerce is huge, and this is not just for luxury brands anymore, you know, having a personal appointment with a brand is actually for, for plumbers through to electronics, lifestyle, home, everybody. And beauty is a really prime example where you may not be able to go into a beauty brand now. And D2C here is, is also mm -hmm. super important because, you know, you'll want, you want to buy that. And I think the influencer piece comes in there as well. Whereas, you know, buying from someone who's super passionate about the brand or about the product, um, that really comes home. And we're just seeing, you know, all of those pieces come, come together. But you need to have the tools. You need to be able to digitize processes that you may have done manually before. But appointments, video calling is really driving a different, a very immersive um, and speedy way of connecting with someone it's almost you know we we kind of have coined it as real-time clienteling now whereas clienteling used to be post-purchase and post you know whereas now it's actually I'm clienteling in the moment and and that's kind of you know all around knowing your customer how do you so Chloe and Kathy how do you get data then from a video if this is becoming more and more important because it's not a, a click it's a conversation it's you know how how we're going to get to that stage for our clients who use video I mean there are some analytics that you can get for example from YouTube seeing where people drop even not even just YouTube for example IGTV is another example you can see at what point do people drop off for example so therefore you know okay well they did, maybe they didn't even get to the juice or why do I have such a high drop off rate and the the influences that that take video seriously they really work on that so that they can um 
increase that time, increase that engagement time on that video. For YouTube, obviously, increasing that engagement time on their video means better success rate if it is a sponsored video. And it also means that potentially more monetization via the YouTube platform. Um, so that's one example. Another thing is we always try to, we're really big on leading people back to their website so we can get that extra data. So say, for example, um, an influencer is doing a, say even is a brand partnership on IGTV or on YouTube, and they're showing their beauty routine and they're trying out a new product. We might then say, um, head over to my blog because there's five extra tips or sign up to my newsletter because I'm actually doing a giveaway with the brand or we'll, we'll add some kind of extra incentive to get them either to their website or their email list where we know that we can then track additional data. And then that data is either then for uh, available for the influencer to make better decisions and or pass to the brand if it was a sponsorship to show them how well um, it performed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking then people kind of forget about newsletters Um, and I'm like a huge advocate I don't actually do one of mine which I should but um, you know I'm a huge advocate of newsletters (laughs) how can we get people back into the idea of newsletters so we've gone hugely innovative but like you know newsletters can be really powerful you know Kathy's just said it's essentially I don't know whether that's email or sms response rates but 70 percent sms or newsletter response rates that's super high you know like how can we look at what we already have as well sometimes and utilize that I think my view on that is um it is it's not a one-size-fits-all and also for different things you you know so obviously um being able to send something via email you've got a bigger canvas to kind of share content content on and different types of content almost you know what, what we, we've, we've just published um what we call our collection builder which is microsite so you can literally send a collection to someone that is a personalized microsite um which you can also do through sms and whatsapp but you've got more space to kind of give more information so i think again it comes back to what chloe was saying at the beginning content is really key and having the right content and the right messaging and that's engaging you will then get that kind of you know sort of open rate and and response rate but also it's not just just on um you know sort of a newsletter you've got you can follow it up with a whatsapp or you know so you're kind of it's blending those communication methods um be able to um sort of engage and it's all about you know it's about getting the engagement right and knowing what what's right. One for one brand, you know, WhatsApp and WeChat might be exactly the right approach. But one interesting point: a lot of brands challenge email and they think that email is dead. But actually, you know, we see some absolutely amazing stats from because it because it is not this generic email that falls into your email box that doesn't mean anything because it is personalised. And I think that's the difference: is when you'll open something that is interesting and that is meaningful, but you tend to sort of delete the stuff that, you know, this deluge of stuff that comes in that is really irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Even to actually um, follow on on that point, you know, if I've seen a couple of questions there about like where you should kind of spend your time and there are many distribution channels for your content. And just because a new channel comes about doesn't mean that you need to be on said channel. You need to understand and think about your customer and where your customer is. And that's where you should spend your time. So if your customer 
it's super young and they're like, what the hell is email? Then fair enough. Like maybe just stick to TikTok and do your thing. But most people have email. So um, just like Kathy was saying, spending time there is important. And for us with the influencers, we really push them to have have and build their email list because their ultimate goal is to have their own products and service. You know, they have their brand partnerships usually as a large part of their uh, monetization pie, shall we, uh, shall we say? And then in future that gets smaller for then their own product or service. So we need to have the data and understand um, what their user like so that eventually we can use that as our own focus group to create our own products. So email is such a great way to do that. And not only that, you're building up a list of, of future customers, you know, very different to social media. I don't necessarily see getting a million followers the same way as building up a database of future customers as I do a strong email list of 10,000. Um, and like Kathy said, with the space also, like that you've got the real estate of an email versus a social media post is completely different and it's a lot more interactive. Um, and spending time on email, you can build that kind of community, as I was speaking about before, and create some kind of exclusivity, which is what we always tell them to do. So people look out for their email. So there are clients who do it best. They often then put something on their Instagram and say, you know, oh, hey, they give their, their email list the name. Like, oh, if you're on my list, you would have seen this last week. So everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a week late. I need, to, I need to join this list. So creating that kind of environment. But again, thinking about where your customer is first and then looking to the distribution channel. Because I think a lot of brands and also influencers get that wrong. Yeah, definitely the confusion between the two and kind of feeling the need to do everything, which yeah. that wasn't right for your, for your brand. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so lots of small businesses are using government grants and loans to improve their digital channels. So this is part of the digital strategy that's come out from the government and anything to do with innovation and innovating to further our digital skills, the government are really behind. So uh, what would be your top recommendations to pay attention to and make the most of that investment, not for just this year, but in a few years, because obviously, you know, everything's so uncertain at the minute. So how do we make the best of the money that we've got? Well, I, I'll, I'll jump in to say there's the, the pace of technology is not slowing down, the pace of change and the technology and the evolution, right? And I don't know how much you're following on um, products being born digitally. So in other words, all the way to the very beginning of supply chain, Ralph Lauren is a great example, putting in information that gives traceability to the supply chain um, can go back as far as fabric, but that carries all the way through to the consumer, right? And that data then allows that channel, if you will, allow the product as a channel allows the brand to transmit and give to the consumer whatever they want them to understand, whether it's care instructions, whether it's buying a replenishment product, whether it's sustainability. Um, so I think looking at technology that helps make our industry cleaner, make our industry more efficient, but also allows us to have more community engagement are the things, and to build those communities, are the things that you should be looking at um, as you invest some of that money. What, what, what products are right for you? We're at a point now where you don't have to build all of these systems. Mm -hmm. You can subscribe to platforms like Segura, right? You can work with um, data um, partners, Right. So you can have data scientists help you understand these things. And I think investing your money and what's the big unlock, what's the power of technology to help you 
do what you want to do. You've got to define your goals. Don't go to the tech first. Don't go to the tech first, right? Define what you want to do and then start looking at what you can do. And in my work with Apple, I mean, you know, replaceability is key. So that's something else to think about. Am I renting? Am I partnering? Am I buying into something? And later as things evolve, how do I replace that? And you need to build that into your plan now. And that's very different from growing up in IT where you built something and you expected it to last for three years, but actually your CFO made it last for six years. And then the new CEO made it last for another two years. And all of a sudden you're still on Lotus Notes. But the point is that goes away now. We don't need to we don't need to behave like that anymore. And young brands have this advantage of investing that money in things that they can replace and things that make them agile. And, you know, it goes back to what we used to say at Burberry, and we borrowed this from Google. You know, you fail fast. You figure it out, you try and you fail fast. Yeah, just on that point, what Craig was saying about being agile is so important. And I think that this year has taught everybody that we need to be agile because we need to be able to pivot very quickly. Otherwise, we'll be left behind. Um, so I just kind of want to say that point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I kind of agree. I agree with with Craig that the first thing is to know what you're trying to do. What's your top priorities and your goals? And you need to you need to have your purpose defined, and you need to have your strategy defined in terms of what you're trying to do. Um, for smaller businesses, there's a lot of stuff out there that's you know that is not expensive that can do the job that you need to do right from the beginning. Even some free tools that you can that you can use to start with, but and you build from there and, and, you know, and, and that's, I think that's the beauty of technology right now is that you can sort of, you know, put something in and then later on plug something else in and, you know, you don't have to spend, you know, millions of pounds on a, a very complex IT infrastructure. Um, but it's all focused on what is your, you know, what it, what's your priorities and then, you know, and then building from there. But, you know, I would also say, naturally because I'm a big fan is put customer at the heart of what you do whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing so you've got to be able to whether you're doing it socially whether you're doing it you know digitally um, make sure that you you know you do you can understand who because if you don't and I've done this same you know I've gone to beautiful fair you know fantastic fairs and beautiful products and 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 then I've I've bought something and they don't even take my name and it's like what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) why aren't you taking my name at least you know like that, that was over in the King's Road, wasn't it, Kathy? I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, and it's um, and it's like you know, that's the, the you know, if you don't collect the data, do something with it, do something meaningful mm. with it, but do you know, it doesn't have to be something every week, you know. Yeah. But for me, I think that's it. Don't be overwhelmed um, by you know by high costs of technology because you can do things simply. Um, uh, you know, and start small because it's not about starting big. <laughs> yeah. So any last roundup points, data and digital? One sentence. Go on, guys, putting you on the spot. Craig, go first. One sentence. I'd say don't be overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you're tr- sometimes you track more data than you need at the time. So track it, but don't let it overwhelm you if you don't fully understand at the time. Just track it and it might come in use further down the line, you might decide two years in in your business, you start using something and think, oh, amazing. I've actually got two years history of this data that I'm now using. So don't overwhelm yourself. Just focus on the data points that make sense at the time. 
Thank you. And, and I would just add to that, tidy as you go. We're terrible at that, that right? Don't try to have a data milestone around what you're doing. If you're capturing it, make it accurate, keep it clean, tidy as you go, and then ultimately trust the data. Because so many brands, particularly very big brands that have been around for many, many years, they, they are very mistrustful of the information that's brought to them. Um, it's fine to question it, but, but be open and trust it. So tidy as you go and then trust. Um, my, my, mine would be just, yeah, don't be afraid to innovate um, and try um, and trust, trust your gut a lot of the time. Trust your gut. Thank you. Peter, last words. I think the, the, the temptation a lot of the time is to be taken off as tangent. And um, there's a guy that I used to admire a lot called Stephen Covey, who has two main quotes. And one was always to begin with the end in mind. And the other thing was the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And um, <laughs> that kind of laser yeah. focus will, will stand anyone in good stead. Thank you so much. Well, that was good. And we shall um, speak to you all soon. So I hope you enjoyed that impromptu episode. There is a video recording of this conversation. I'm going to put it in the show notes for you, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 163. Until next week. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there are bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.